Welcome back to the Consequences podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Woo! how um, how overcome we are now. Oh, oh that's lovely. Thank you. Uh, we're we're going to uh, carry on with another track from the original soundtrack. <clears throat> Thank you. But that. This is a track in three parts. I haven't said anything yet. Yes, actually, this is a track. Thank you. No, we don't know that one. Right, we're going to do another track from the original soundtrack. Well, having a a look in detail at 10CC's masterpiece last week, Paul, we come to the album that it lived on, an album that is seen as a, a, a classic. Some people view original soundtrack as 10cc's album masterpiece. We might beg to differ on that one, particularly following on the, on the heels of sheet music. I do. Uh, as early as 1976, I think it was, in the uh, George Tremlett book, uh, Graham was pretty honest when he, I think it was in that book, where he said, the original soundtrack is all right, but we didn't capture the same thing we captured on sheet music. Mm. I think he knew that. Maybe the others knew it. And, you know, for, from my own point of view, I just don't enjoy it as much as I enjoy sheet music and, for that matter, the original album because the the kind of palpable sense of fun mm. is draining away. Yeah. Um, they're a bit more serious. They've got a big record contract. There's a bit more riding on what's happening. I think that's the key thing. They've They've just... Signed on the dotted line, reluctantly at first. Yeah. At first, for a, allegedly a £1 million record deal. That is a massive deal in 1975. Yeah. I suspect that they'd have felt a tremendous responsibility to come up with the goods, hmm. which, of course, they do uh, in some spectacular ways on the album, particularly, yeah. I mean, any album with I'm Not In Love on hmm. is worth its weight in gold, isn't it? Agreed. But somehow, yes, that that sense of frenetic cardboard, sellotape and scissors approach of sheer willful and unself-conscious boiling pot of ideas that we that we had on those first two albums is a bit more methodical on this record, isn't it? Mm-hmm. A little bit more workmanlike. Yeah, in places. Yeah, it, a bit safer, arguably. Yes. Yeah. That said, we've got some absolutely fantastic tracks. And as a whole, I think the album's a little bit uneven. What we have got is three songs that stand head and shoulders above the others, in, in my opinion. In uh, Une Nuit à Paris, One Night in Paris, I'm Not in Love, and Minestrone for me. I think uh, 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 hugely the, the album's highlights. But everything else alongside those three, just they don't make the mark in my opinion. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. Let's see how we get on track by track, because yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, mm. I feel I uh, might want to revise my opinion, but I, I guess we'll, we'll see as we go. Sure. One night in Paris is like a year in any other place. One night in Paris will wipe the smile off your pretty face. One girl in Paris is like loving every woman. One night in Paris. One night in Paris. 
It looks like One Night in Paris and I'm Not in Love were the first two of the tracks that they, they started work on. And it sounds, sort of reading between the lines of what Eric's saying in his book, it sounds like they were happening at the same time, uh, or at least when Eric and Graham are playing the other two, their initial demo of the song in that bossa nova style, Godly and Cream were, were then working on what would become One Night in Paris. And, and this is something fascinating for me, uh, to hear Eric talking about the original concept for the album was going to be effectively an opera uh, called Une Nuit à Paris. The whole thing? I thought it was a sidelong. There's one, there's one interview with, with Eric where he talks about it being at least uh, one side of, okay. of an album. Right. And I fantasise about one day hearing that 30-minute that version. I think I'm Not In Love would actually have fit with that, wouldn't it? Yes, as a kind of a, a tag on the end of, of, of an album that Inside, had... Inside, as a character... Oh, know, I see what you mean. ...becoming subsumed into the story or something, mm. and that would have worked. Mm. That's an interesting thought. Even blackmail. Mm. I don't know. With different lyrics, I'm just just uh, sky blue thinking mm. here. But I'd sell I'd sell a kidney to hear that that long version of uh, of One Night in Paris. I really love the track. It has its faults, I think, and I think it has its limitations. I don't think it's, for example, it has the musical scope of something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which it, it's always lumbered in, into bed with. Yeah, and I think undeservedly so yeah let's clear this up yeah. sort of right now we've looked at the timelines and uh one night in paris was undoubtedly completed and released before bohemian rhapsody started its recording we know that and um it's kind of cropped up recently it's only very recently over the past few years that it, it's been said that one night in paris directly influenced Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm. But I, I don't think anybody's ever put forward any evidence f for that. Mm. Obviously, Freddie's not around to answer that. But No. You uh, don't come up with Bohemian Rhapsody in, in two weeks after after sitting down with a 10cc album in, in May or whatever. And parts of Bohemian Rhapsody were written, you know, a decade before, weren't they? They were written in the late 60s, I believe, the main part of Bohemian Rhapsody. But, but that aside, there isn't... Uh, you were saying earlier, Sean, before we started recording, it was something in the air, the expansiveness, the experimentation yeah. of, of British pop music, particularly studio-bound, you know, musicians mm. pushing the barriers, which meant that you know there is a similarity between the tracks. But I, I don't see how one influenced the other, and unless somebody from the Queen camp. Mm. comes out and says, "Yes, we, we did love One Night in Paris. We were influenced." To do something similar, yeah. I don't see there's any really cor any correlation between the two. Sure, I mean there there are arguably similarities, aren't there, in terms of the the, the piano being such a dominant instrument. Uh, it's a, an opera with 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 different sections. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, and if you take away Brian May's guitar, what you hear from the multi-track tapes, uh, isolated from Bohemian Rhapsody the backing track that Mercury, Taylor and Deacon put together 
sounds a little bit like the full backing track for One Night in Paris. A little bit, but that's yeah. only because it's drums, bass and piano, I think. Instrumentation credits for One Night in Paris list Lowell uh, playing pianos, vibes and percussion, Eric on steel guitar, Graham bass and percussion, Kev drums, timpani and percussion. Um, There's no standard electric or acoustic guitars on the track, which is unusual for 10cc. Yeah, I mean, they were almost restricting their palette, weren't they? Yeah. They, They deliberately reduced the number of instruments, it seemed, in order to focus attention on the, on the vocals and, yeah. and the rhythm, perhaps. Yeah, I agree. And it, it gives space for the vocals to, to, to really shine through. And there's, there are some amazing vocal performances on this song. I like the fact that all four of the 10ZC members are playing really important roles in the narrative, aren't they? And, yeah. and the, the, there's a, a fantastic imagination going on here. A perfect example of Godly and Cream's sort of cinematic imagination. Uh, and the, uh, seeing it here with the with the actual original LP in front of us and the, the lovely lyric sheet with all those those beautiful illustrations, the whole lyric the lyric sheet is written out in in script style. It's in that courier font, yeah. uh, which everything belongs to to this cinematic premise for for this album. And what a way to start it. Uh, we have Madame Bézier, don't we, saying, Bonjour, monsieur. And uh, Lol really camping it up. Oh, he's loving that part, isn't he? Yeah. With the, the street sounds and <laughs> yeah. then the... Yeah. He does a lot of vocals in drag, doesn't he, Lol? Yeah, seems to be comfortable. Yeah. A bit yeah, like but... the Les Dawson of, uh, you know, he's comfortable <laughs> in, like... <laughs> With his arms folded and yeah. his, his false teeth somewhere else. The album starts in, uh, in an intriguing way that I find irresistible. I, I'm a bit of a sucker for sound effects on records. Oh, yeah. And there were, there were a lot happening in, in this era of the 70s. You think to an album the year before, uh, Crime of the Century by Supertramp, which has a, a, a wonderful track called Rudy, which has the, the, the train sound effects. I wonder if both Rudy and One Night in Paris were influenced by a marvellous record uh, Murray Head's Nigel Lived that came out in 73, mm-hmm. engineered by Phil Brown, who was a, an amazing engineer, worked with Roxy Music and later with uh, on the, the two classic albums by Talk Talk. And he broke the mould a little bit on Nigel Lived in going out, finding uh, found sounds, uh, sounds from the street, sounds of trains and, and cars going past. And it sounds a bit mundane, but they're... They interweave around the songs, mm-hmm. telling Nigel's story, beautifully recorded in stereo, similar in a way to what Kevin Lola Martin Lawrence were doing on Consequences with the Sennheiser head, mm-hmm. recording those hyper-realistic sort of stereo soundscapes. Mm-hmm. 
I love the way this starts. Eric is is very, very fond of this track, and he said how much fun they had recreating the Paris street scene with the milk bottles. Yeah, yeah. The guy sort of ringing the bell on the bike. Uh, I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely marvelous, uh, and the band are having real fun taking it in turns to play these these parts. Madame Bézier, bonjour, monsieur, uh, and then a tourist. Played by Eric. Mm. It's crazy. It isn't worth a I'll take it. And then you have a, a chorus talking about uh, painting a scene again, very visual, very cinematic, with the, um, the, the 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 lips made up with lipstick in the gaslight. Wonderfully descriptive, this song, I think, and, and the seediness of Paris and the brothels and everything really comes across. Mm. It, it sort of preempts consequences, but at this stage, the lines are still sung rather than spoken. If you imagine these lines uh, retrofit into, you know, not necessarily Peter Cook's, but speech patterns, you're getting a bit closer to the, the idea of the consequences script in a way. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and... I don't know where I read it, Paul. You might know more about this. Uh, there was a theatre company who proposed to put One Night in Paris on the stage. Oh, I don't know about that. That might have even been in, in, in later years. Okay. More recently than 75. Wow. Would have worked tremendously. I think they were thinking of a whole, a whole concept based around the song. Yeah. So you, you'd, have, you know, you'd have had Madame Bézier, the, the narrator, Coquette, you know, who's the prostitute who I think who appears in the first movement and in the third yeah. movement oh right? ma chérie yeah. but she's also in the nightclub same character is that that's it Yeah, and so I think that the stage, the stage concept was to just expand those characters out, make it a, a true love story, and uh, I'd have paid money to see that. I do love the way that each of the movements, while being sort of discreet, finish with the same musical motif, the massed yeah. voices. Very powerful, isn't it, the way it's, uh, maybe your last? Yes.
again, the use of silence that they use so effectively on consequences is there mm. uh, in, in its earlier form. Um, I love the wordplay on this. Um, I even like the dodgy French accents, actually, to be fair. Yeah, I think they... They're, they're very uh, fruity, aren't they? Mm. They're, 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 they're beautifully realised, uh, albeit inauthentic. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, the track. It, it really is. Is he gonna buy? And and I always like hearing Graham sing uh, substantial lead vocals yeah, as well. Yeah. He's underused, arguably, isn't he? Mm. Within 10cc, rubbing shoulders as he is with two of the best singers in pop, and, yeah. and Lol, who is also a great singer. But that's where I, I must admit, when you get. Um an Eric vocal followed by a Kev vocal. Um, that's you get, really get some magic there. You, do. you get two, and there's a there's a moment in this. It's the third in the third movement, isn't it? Then the floor cleared. A woman screamed to herself, oh. and then that's Eric, and then and then Kev. I mean, th- those little chunks of melody are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I think that's my favourite bit of the yeah. song. And the floor I think that uh, the other bit I really like is where they're doing the dances. You can't even do the uh, the bossa nova or the or the tango or the samba, and then you go into the samba rhythm, maybe with a drum machine, or maybe it's just so metronomic the drumming. I don't know. Yes, it's it, it sounds. It's not mentioned how they use the uh, the organ. Um, oh right, the, there's a bossa there's a bossa nova organ track I think behind. Film of My Love. Yes, yes, a rhythm box. And maybe they're using it here as well, do you think? Um, Just possibly. I... It's not mentioned, okay. but I think you might be right, but we'll have a listen. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great track. It, it's, it's very ambitious. There are bits in it that, that, to my ears, aren't so strong musically. Yeah. But, you know, it's... Um, what's the duration of the track? Eight minutes, is it? Eight thirty-nine, it says it on, on the lyric sheet. It doesn't seem that long. No, so it, it, it really doesn't. It, it zips along. Yeah, yeah. But I think the only thing that I find less than perfect about One Night in Paris, and it, it's sort of true of the rest of the album, in that this album, when you play it straight after sheet music, certainly on CD, and to a lesser extent on vinyl, is that the, the higher frequencies are really, really boosted. Mm-hmm. Whereas sheet music's got a, a comparatively more kind of mellow timbre to it kind of more middly but Eric is really really accentuating the high frequencies on this album and it does mean that the the kind of the open hi-hat hits that Kev's doing on this track <laughs> I was a stripper on the Champs-Élysées yeah bit, the yeah. hi-hats they're almost painful to listen to because they're so shrill when they're 
And that's true of a few other tracks on the album. Uh, and I'd, I would definitely pull that back. Maybe it's Eric wanting to make this a, a really, really polished record that, that glistens in every way. It glistens and sparkles. Uh, and to me, perhaps they've tried a little bit too hard to make it this kind of crystalline, perfect production. Were they using different equipment? I mean, they already... He, he had... just had the new desk, hadn't he? He just had this Helios desk. Uh, right, so they already had 16 track, but now they had a 24-channel desk. A, is a that... different desk, yeah. Okay. Um, and to Eric's horror, when he plugged in a guitar to to create his trademark 10cc guitar sound, you know, DI, yeah. no amp, with the, um, the gain control on the input turned up to max, mm-hmm. so it was kind of artificially distorted yeah but you get that that sort of creamy very very bright distortion on those early records when he tried it on this brand new desk yeah that the supplier was so happy with Eric was horrified because the sound was harsh and brittle it might just be the very nature the perfection of this brand new desk created a sound that didn't have the kind of funky softness of the right. old desk okay it was actually perhaps a two too perfect mm. in some ways. He tried to buy back some of those units, didn't he? He did, and they wouldn't, they, uh, they wouldn't on the black them. market. Yeah, they wouldn't sell them back. But I eventually was able to recreate that sound somehow, but or almost recreate it. But yeah, so a, a really colourful opening track, and I think it gets the get the it gets the album off to an amazingly strong start. Um, uh, just there's so much going on. The, the, the interplay between all all those characters, hustlers and narrators, and Chinese tarts, yeah. voices of the streets, <laughs> coquettes girls, you know, it just goes on and on and on. Um, fantastic, I think. But, yeah, there are some musical lim- limitations. I think some of the, the chord progressions. Yeah, they're a little like, bit rote, aren't they? They are. And the kind of long piano-led instrumental section. Oh, we're nit- nitpicking, but... Yeah, some of it sounds like he's playing with boxing gloves on, but I like the power that he gets from that kind of style. Yeah. Reminiscent, if that's the right word, reminiscent in, in reverse of some of the stuff he was doing in Blint's tune on Consequences, where he's depicting the, the angry elements fighting back against Blint. Uh, I think his piano work is much superior on Consequences. Yeah. He, he's, he's, his, his touch is more subtle by that point. Yeah. He's really put a lot more work in, I think. By sure. Now. And looking at the album as a whole, of course, we have to skip... The Elephant in the Room, yeah. which uh, we delved into at length last week. And we come on to a track which I think starts with fantastic promise and ends with me wanting to just take the needle off the record before the track is finished. She doesn't need money, she doesn't need diamonds, she's looking for pretty things. Yeah, it 
it's not a long track blackmail, but the last minute or so, it, it doesn't really go anywhere. And it's the, perhaps the very first stirrings of that, that tiredness, or maybe mm. um, the, the fact that they were just not cutting something down as, as much, as brutally as they had in the no. past. And perhaps, you know, if we, if we can imagine the, the conversations that happen in that control room at Strawberry North, Maybe Eric insisted on always having one extended guitar solo on an album. It happens in Rubber Bullets, doesn't it? It happens in Silly Love. Maybe. And it happens here. And uh, I think he's proud of that steel guitar solo on this one. Yes. But it grates to hell with me. Maybe that's just my ears. Yeah, by the end it's a little harsh on the ears, isn't yeah. it? But, um... Yeah. But up until then I think the song's fun. And it, it has one of my favourite sounds on the album which is, is that wonderful vocal part that sounds a bit like a cello, it's, and it's called cello on the, the tape box, thanks mm. to Eric's book, where they're recycling the, the lower half-speed vocals um, from the I'm Not In Love session. Right. Um, and creating what I, I was convinced before I read Eric's book that it was actually Lowell playing the gizmo. Doing the yeah, and and it sounds much like a lot of the sounds that that Lowell was producing for Consequences, but it's a vocal sound played again with the faders alternating. Very difficult to do on a fader. Yeah, but I think it's a marvelous sound. And it helps lift this song from slightly run of the mill. Uh, I like, I mean, uh, the, the slide guitar licks are very tasty, you know, when they bring those yeah. in. I think it's, it's a good story and buzzes along with it. It's got a, it's got a punchline, twist in the tail. When the, it has, and, and I like that. And they, they've done, the, it's the usual sleaze and money theme again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the blackmailed, turns the tables on the blackmailer. Um, yeah. That, that's clever. Yeah. They're behind the keyhole. Uh, which, of course, was the original title, it would seem, from yeah. looking at the, the photo of the tape box. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, it bounces along. There's a lovely, uh, a lovely bounciness to this track that kind of harks back a little bit to some of the stuff on sheet music, I think. Yes. Hotel, for example, and Sacroiliac, and they're capturing that well here. Lol's on, on organ, Kev on drums, Eric on guitar, steel guitar, piano, and Graham on guitar and bass. Again, fairly, fairly basic instrumentation certainly compared to to some of the funky stuff they were getting up to on sheet music yeah um, but a, a, a good track so I think side one overall is is very strong it's got two classics in my view one all-time pop monument and a good album track I think I read in Eric's book that again uh, the complete concept and most of the lyrics to Blackmail were written by Eric on his own. Right, okay. Yeah. And that seems to be a recurrent theme with their collaborations. If we take Eric's book at face value, possibly he's over-egging the pudding for personal reasons, but it seems that, that Eric was instrumental, uh, no pun intended there, in coming up with the the main skeleton of a song and certainly the lyrics and ideas and it, it made me think that Eric's 
particularly underrated as a lyric writer, I think. We don't yeah. often think of him having that strong role in 10 season. Yeah, I, yes, because Godley and Cream and they're the force of their personality, yeah. almost, and their lyrical bent, if yes. you like. Particularly Kev's. Yeah, tends to overshadow yeah. the other writers, including Eric. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that's fair. Yeah. He's never as funny as Kev. Or, or lol no I don't think um, it, it, although there's wit there um, and he, he certainly has a lot of heart in his lyrics Kevin lol sometimes miss the target emotionally uh, but Eric has very he clearly has very very strong views on money and money related corruption mm. on sleaze uh, so general salaciousness we but should all, say he's anti all of those things not yeah yeah <laughs> not no, no, no absolutely um, and and Again, very often cropping up in his songs uh, is injustice and, and homelessness and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, he's got probably of the four, as far as we can tell, certainly at that stage, um, social conscience. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think in, you know, in, in his way, you know, trying to chip away at changing the world. Uh, and um, some of the, the kind of venom he has against those people is very, very strong. Sometimes it comes across better than others. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll see on side two that... In fact, witness second sitting for The Last Supper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they seem to have a collective, very strong view. Yeah, we. I guess that's that song is credited to all four, so we yeah. shouldn't assume it's an Eric song just because he has a lead vocal. But it sure sounds like an Eric song to me. Yeah, I believe he um, he wrote the lion's share of the basic structure of the song, if uh, I remember uh, from his book. Okay, so that pattern again, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I I believe that's the case. Um, and I've always liked Second Sitting for the Last Supper, even though it's a bit of a a fairly predictable song, I'd argue. Mm. Musically? Or yeah, musically a, a little bit predictable. Um, it's a stunning lead vocal, though, isn't it? It really is. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece of singing. And it's a great instrumental track. It's a real showcase for Eric, because uh, during the out, outward minute or so, he really plays some rock and roll piano. Um, I'm pretty sure that is him. I know Lol is credited with uh, with piano on the track as well. I think. That's, that's yeah, that's Eric. right. It's definitely Eric because on a ca- just occasionally um, in, in sort of concert footage, you'll see him play a similar sort of lines. Sure. Kind of Little Richard inspired. Yep. Hammering fast, you know. Sure. Right hand stuff sounds great. And I imagine that Eric did write it on the on the piano because uh, he tended to write on keyboard. Yeah, interestingly, well, yeah. I, I'd always assumed that he he would have written on guitar. Yeah, we've yeah. seen him, you know, primarily as a guitarist. Um, yeah, I think the thing that most interests me about about this song, Paul, is how often a predominantly Jewish band reference Jesus 
either directly, you know, talking about, you know, Jesus um, needing to come down for his his second stint, um, but they mention him in, in lyrics, um, and obviously, you know, in in the Jewish faith, Jesus doesn't exist as as the Messiah. I don't know where you stand on that. Do you feel it's kind of it it it's strange that three Jewish, uh, you know, three quarters Jewish band would even have a song about Jesus Christ? Uh, never really thought about it before, mm. to be honest. I mean, the, the figure still looms large, whether it's uh, however you place him in the, in the culture. So yeah, yeah. There are some nice, some nice uh, lyric phrases. I think from from Eric here. Uh, although we can't be sure because I think it was a little bit more of a, a direct collaboration, this song. It's reminiscent of the of the very succinct wordplay he uses on Wall Street Shuffle, I think. Mm-hmm. I particularly like the verse when he says, another guru in the money, another mantra in the mail. And I think there's, there's lovely alliteration there. Mm. And again, he, he's got that obsession with, with corruption and, and sleaze. But he does it very, very effectively here, mm. um, a little bit more in a more entertaining and I think a, a cleverer way than he does on, on say, headline hustler or something like that. And it, he's having a pop at, at people just making money out of out of religion. And I think that that's really, really nicely put in my in my opinion. Another guru in the money. Of course, you've got his other, uh, one of his other obsessions, mentioned in the first verse. Another loser in the queue for the soup kitchen. Right, it's right. clearly playing on his his mind. It's obviously uh, got him bothered. Yeah, yeah. I guess newly rich or you know relatively well off. Yeah. And and thinking about those that aren't. Yeah, he, he may well have, have uh, felt a bit of guilt there. I think we hear Second City of the Last Supper resurrected. At the end of side two of consequences. Uh, yes, uh, with the flood. Yes. Yeah, you pointed that out not long ago, and you're undoubtedly right. It's a very, very similar riff. So maybe it's Lowell's riff. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. There's a pleasant Godly and Cream number next, isn't there? With Brand New Day. Hmm, a gospel. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that one? Uh, it's grown on me over the years. Uh, it's got Lowell's trademark arpeggio keyboard figures. Mm. And uh, that's a lovely little motif, isn't it, at the start? It is, slowly changing patterns. Yeah. And it, it's, it's reminiscent of the, of the later five o'clock in the morning, which I like even more, or quite a bit more. Yeah, me too. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a nice careworn song. It's quite a sad song. Yeah. Just telling about the the grind of, of day-to-day living, really. Mm. You wake up in the morning, you, you you go and do your job, and then you're exhausted at the end of the night, and, and you go to sleep again. It doesn't sound like a lot, but they, they managed to bring out a lot uh, in, the, in, in the vocal performance. Again, Kev and Eric have important trading parts mm. um, where, you know, the, 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 the contrast in their... In the, in the sweetness of, the, of their voices is, is really beautiful at times. It's the start of a brand new day 
section when uh, the sections where Eric comes in for birds of prey I love the way he's using reverb and delay on that one sounds absolutely fantastic and I've been trying to pin down where I think this song comes from in terms of its influences um, I think it might be a kind of black spiritual influence oh definitely yeah. I think they're maybe harking back to visit Porgy and Bess um, that, that set, I think, in, in the, the Deep South, you know, songs like Summertime and so on. Mm. When you open your eyes to a brand new morning. That's definitely uh, rooted to back to the spirituals, I think. Yeah, I'm hearing that too. Yeah. Summertime And the living is easy Beautiful instrumentation on this, and quite a long list of instruments uh, on on the sleeve listed, uh, reminiscent of, of some of the tracks from sheet music, I suppose. You know, old Wild Men and uh, Hotel and so on. Um, Kev's, apart from singing the, the first lead vocal, he's playing marimba, bass drum, timpani, cellos. Yeah, where's that? Where are you hearing the cellos? Is it more voice loops? used or I'm, I'm not hearing those either I mean does Kev actually play the cello uh, well uh, lol uh, allegedly is playing violins on here Eric's doing secondly vocal and guitars obviously the, all four of them are doing backup vocals as well Lol's playing pianos gizmo which is listed separately oh, to violins okay, right moog oh yes subtle use of the synthesizer which I think is 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 synced with with a gizmo part a pizzicato gizmo part that is very, very reminiscent of what, what he does with Stampede and Blint's tune, right, okay. particularly, uh, and mobilisation on, on consequences. Yeah. And uh, Graham's playing both, both electric bass and double bass. So it's one of the tracks on this album that I find most interesting instrumentally. Hmm. Uh, and, and some of the tracks on, on, on this album are less interesting instrumentally for me, or the choice of instrumentation isn't quite as effective as it has been on previous stuff. Um, yeah, there's something a little bit, dare I say, a little bit on the bland side about Brand New Day. And I think Kev would, would, would turn in his beard hearing me say that, because he's the enemy of Bland, isn't he? Yeah, his vocal performance lifts it, and the, yeah. their combined vocal performances lift it, I would say, because yeah. it, it's, it's, it's sung with a lot of emotion. Yeah. It rings true, but, um, yeah, it's not, it, it's 
not their very strongest musical moment, perhaps, but no. it's affecting nonetheless. They are wonderful, and you know, it's it's, it's nice to hear the the, the, the lovely pads of uh, of Gizmo playing. Gizmo is so underused, I think, in 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 the ten cc canon. Uh, there's no wonder that they they unleashed it. Uh, with consequences, because it was a, a sleeping giant. Perhaps oh. they were having trouble with their prototype. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it wasn't playing ball on uh, yeah. during some periods of making this record. That's right, and, I get, and less is more, I think. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Probably my least favourite track on the album. Mm, mine too. It's not bad, but I'm actually struggling to find something very interesting to say about it. It is the tale of a drug dealer, is it? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a, a, a pun. Some Asian ships called junks and junk yeah. being being drugs, but it's a pretty weak pun in my view. Yeah, it's just um, it's just not that interesting. It's got some. Use you know useful musical sections, but it's strange. You know, uh, this is one of the first Ten CC songs that that I'm beginning to hit a wall. You know, I found mm. it very easy to enthuse and talk about pretty much all the songs we've mentioned up until now. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, and we're, we're, I'm feeling that that our shoulders are drooping. Yeah, a I mean, bit suddenly here. I know we have been in here a couple of hours, but nonetheless we're on side two, and I do feel uh, some of the fears is just kind of draining away and mm. I, I feel this is a, a rather pedestrian track yeah sorry guys lifted a little bit by uh, the lovely auto harp that that lol plays on this one yeah that kind of uh, it's kind of half dulcimer half harp um graham plays it of course on on the previous album right. and, and that is a lovely sound and that lovely kind of washy sound at the end of the track yeah. where you've got that extended fade i think that is beautiful Is that everything being put through a phaser, or is it not phaser? There's definitely a phaser being used there. Okay. Uh, but I, I really, I, I really like that bit. But yeah, the the song itself, I think it's got very pedestrian uh, lyrics that aren't very poetic. Ooh, he's a stalwart with a heavy load on. He's got a finger in everyone's pie, and he's got what you want. Oh, he's a salesman, and his goods are going to bring you down. There's nothing exciting there for me. It just sounds a bit ordinary. I could live with the lyrics, but I just think the music isn't as exciting as what's come before. No. I mean, nobody can operate at that level all the time. No, that's right. But uh, thank goodness, uh, Paul, from our point of view, and, and I presume from our listeners' point of view, <laughs> that things go from <laughs> mundane and mediocre to... Uh, 
in my view, absolutely wonderful with, with Life as a Minestrone. Yeah, it's quintessential 10cc, isn't it? The energy's back. Yeah. song because the um, the chorus only has a single chord in it yeah wife is a minestrone which also doubles as the intro um, uh, contrasting with the rest of the sections of the song where there's all kind of chords moving around in in a fashion almost re- resembling the Dean and I, I I think so very much very much and it's got that real uh, joy in it yeah um, the kind of travelogue bouncing around the world with these ridiculous puns and you've got lol <laughs> for the last time singing lead on a on a 10cc single yeah Is it the last lead vocal on a hit that Lol ever sang? I mean, he, di- he didn't sing on any of the hits Godly and Cream had. He did sing on um, Englishman in New York. Yeah, walk but, tall, walk straight. Yeah, but not a lead. A... And it wasn't a hit anyway. No. I mean, well, yeah, I suppose it's a cult hit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I'm wondering, I mean, I know he had a cameo in Art for Art's sake, but otherwise it's a sort of farewell from one of the great... Mm. lovely eccentric pop vocalists of the mm. 70s you know burning bright and then he's yeah. I think at his own insistence he wanted to take a step back at some point you know after this but with Godly and Cream yeah so it's uh, thanks a lot we, you know we're really loving your last uh, you know high profile lead mm. vocal <laughs> and thank goodness that he, he has such a distaste for cold food he tells us <laughs> he hates cold food has to have everything warmed up and, and I think it was just him and him and Eric obviously co-writing this and just brainstorming on all their favourite hot foods and what would what would be the worst example of a cold meal and they've come up with uh, with cold lasagna Cold lasagna, Me too. Actually. but that that that's that's by the by. When, <laughs> when this song came out, I had very conservative with a small C taste. Uh, yeah, I never heard of parmas and cheese. I thought it was served <laughs> up with pommies and peas. Yeah, I thought it was pommies and oh, pommies, pommies and cheese. Oh, pommies and cheese. Pommies, pommies and, and che- peas. Pommies and yeah. Well, what is a pommy? And I well, thought, it's, it's, oh, it's that's the, yeah, it's the French, uh, the yeah. French potato, which harks yeah. back to one night in Paris. Or I apples. Mean, yeah, all right. Yeah, but yeah, you, no, no. You could see them at a push. You could have a minestrone with those different <laughs> ingredients. Made sense to me, anyway. Yeah. But it was the seventies, and we didn't have foreign food, did we, in, in England, particularly? No. no. Uh, yeah, it was a long time before I discovered what parmesan cheese yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love, I love it. The, the wordplay is hilarious. I think it's, it, it works terrifically, and you've got that lovely bouncy shuffle beat that they use 
um, so often on the first album. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. It, it kind of, it skips, doesn't it? It skips along. I like the way they hold off, you know, as, as I've just said, the, the introduction is actually the chorus in disguise. It yeah. probably would have been more logical in terms of the song's construction to start with that dun, dun, da, dun, dun, which mm. becomes the placeholder between sections later on. Yeah. But the fact they hold that off actually really works well. I agree. And you've got uh, Graham there playing the opening riff on the on, on his electric guitar. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a great guitarist. He's an underrated guitarist, isn't he? And he's on an awful lot of these songs playing guitar. Yeah, yeah, We yeah. think of him as purely the bass player, but he's... Uh, oh, no, just because he's the third guitarist, that's yeah. still... Uh, that, and he was, he was a key part of that three-man backing track, wasn't he? Where oh, yeah. those tracks were built around the three of them playing together in the studio. Exactly. A, a really clever... Uh, aspect of this song that is very rarely heard in pop songs is the way you go from uh, a compound time shuffle beat to doing doing before the chorus happens you get a, a, a kind of a snare break one bar and you're into straight four four Minnie Mouse she takes the mickey out of yeah. all my phobias and that's a very very clever thing we know the song so well we're so familiar with it we don't really recognise that that's a, a change in, in time signature right right um, very very cleverly done I thought I'm leaning on the tower of Pisa Yeah, lovely track and a load of fun. They're clearly having a great time. Yeah, which is which is good. One of Lol's best ever lead vocals for me is uh, the little middle section where he's saying, "Love is a fire of flaming brandy." Oh yeah, it's not delivered in that camp, nasally, uh, annoying, kind of scrapey fashion that he does so often on the first album. But this is a, a proper ballsy vocal from Lol, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, love it. Really, really superb. And then the album finishes with a track that, for many years, Paul, I hated. It really, it grated on me, it annoyed me. I've come to appreciate it and enjoy it, possibly because the, I think the textures in it are beautiful. Are they? I mean... I, 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 I believe so. I think that the, the mandolins in particular okay. are reminiscent, I think, of possibly the theme of The Godfather. I think that might have been what they were going oh, okay. for that, that is built around that, that mandolin sound. Uh, played by by Lol and, and Graham. I think it sounds wonderful. But it's it's five minutes long, and it's like it's it's almost like a one-trick pony. You know, a one-joke movie. I really wish that Kevin Lawler had done the usual trick of, of cutting to, to a different scene. I think, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's designed to be uh, almost grating. I mean, the fact they gave the lead vocal to Graham is interesting. I mean, you can hear Kev's phrasing. It's almost as if you can imagine Kev singing this song. But yeah. they've given it to Graham. 
Kev's vocal is almost too sincere, isn't it? Yeah, they gave it to Graham and he only just gets away with it. He's at the top of his range. Yeah. And it's almost drifting in into cabaret. Yeah. But, but, he's, but he's, he's deliberately camping it up a bit. Yeah, isn't I he? can't believe he wasn't in on the joke. I'm yeah. not saying they were as cruel as we'll give this one to, to Ringo. Ringo. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not that thing. Because he kind of ends up with the Ringo role, doesn't he, in 10 CC? Kind of. Kind of, because his singers are so great. Yeah. yeah. He, he, yeah. he gets the ones at the bottom of the tin a bit, you know, those. <laughs> those kind of yellow triangles or whatever yeah rather than the red ones but um the strawberry you know filled ones but mm. um no pun intended Good job. Is they're they're all in on in on the joke. It, it's got quite a clever lyric, isn't it? I think so. And, and I do like the the verse sections, which they kind of start the same as the chorus, but then they d- drop off into this nice kind of this queasy chord change. Na, 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 I yeah. like that. That's my favourite part of the song. I think. Yeah, the kind of major minory change that we is, see is, is in that "I'm Not in Love." Is that what's happening? I think I think so. Oh, okay. And uh, there's some a little bit of cheeky naughtiness going on there with. Close up of yours, a long shot of mine. <laughs> You're a naughty bit of a sexuality there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, superimposed together. So I think Kevin Lowell probably were just brainstorming uh, different terminology from the movies, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's fun. It, it reminds me, you know, of Monty Python. And I don't know, I don't know in what way it does. Perhaps it's uh, always... Always look on the bright side of life. Or that the universe song, is it? Or the galaxy song? Yeah. That the kind of uh, the guy in the la- Eric Idle in the Lame suit. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. There, there's something about it that wouldn't be out of place at the end of a of a Python movie as a kind of a, 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 a an all star sort of song and dance number. Yeah, it's, it's deliberately insincere, isn't it? And pray that there's intelligent life somewhere up in space, because there's bugger all down here on Earth. Yes, it, it, it's deliberately fake. I think the words uh, sats, and yeah. it, it's deliberately cheesy with a deliberately che- cheesy lyric and vocal. But I think the joke way outlasts its welcome. Yeah, but again, I think that's the point. Interesting, we're finding it pretty easy to talk about this song, whereas Flying Junk, yeah. for example, is just a kind of song which sits there. Uh, where Film of My Love does make you think. Yeah, Flying Junk's like a, a poor man's OFND, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, domestic version of O'Fendi. Yeah, even, even though the, the character is is clearly a wealthy chap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the songs that didn't make the album. Yeah, Can definitely. we? I can't wait to talk about Channel Swimmer. Well, it's cold down here. Funnily enough, I've got the, the one from uh, from Mercury from 96. Crikey, is it that long since it came out? Um, a CD that on its spine says, 10cc, the Oregonal soundtrack. <laughs> uh, they really ought to check. Uh, <laughs> 
get the sub editors on their on their um, on their masters before they go to print. But I really like these two bonus tracks, particularly. Uh, I love them. Channel Swimmer. Oh, in yeah. an all in an alternate universe, that's a hit single. In, in my gut, I like Channel Swimmer more than any other track on the original soundtrack, with the possible possible exception of "I'm Not in Love." With the possible exception of yeah, I'm as really, a, as a song, it's that's that strong. strong. I've, I've, you know, I heard it around somebody's house. I had a collection of B-sides. I'd never heard, you know, 10CC B-sides. I was familiar with the album. I put this on, and by the, you know, it's a bullseye. The end of that first chorus, mm. I was, mm-hmm. I was, I was smitten. I think Graham sometimes, and I know it's a, a Goldman Godley song, but I, I hear it as a Graham song. Yeah, and, and me you can, too. Sometimes you just get it, you know, hits you right between the eyes. No pun intended. Mm. Scores a bullseye. You know, he does it on. Uh, Love's Not For Me, Behind The Door, Bus Stop, and this is just one of those. Yeah, it's, yeah. Wow, what a song. I agree, and it's got his it, it's, it's, it's beautiful way with chords. Yeah. Some really interesting things going on here. Sort of shifts, major, major minor, but um, lovely, unusual progressions that take you, that take you um, down an unexpected path, but then back to a hooky, a hooky uh, chorus. I don't, I don't know what the chords in this song are, and maybe that's just as well. I've never, never really thought about it. I just love what they are and and what it does. I yeah, think it's a lovely warm vocal from from Graham. I yeah, think. Yeah, it's great. Lovely harmonies. Beautiful guitar solo. Yeah, you know, cresting just at the right point. Yeah, um, it, it's it's wonderful track. Me too. And um, I think it's a close brother or sister to Sacroiliac. Yeah. Not only do they share the, the same writers, mm. but I, again, I really like the protagonist here. He's got uh, a likability, and, and that Graham gives is a very likeable performer yes. on, on record with 10CC, and of course live. Yeah. Uh, and he, and he, he, he gives you that same likability as with Sacroiliac here, and there's a lovely modesty as well. And at the end, you know, when he says he can't swim. Yeah. Uh, you know, a corny end, maybe, oh, it's but, a, it's but it's a part nice of the character, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just like the guy on sheet music who, who can't dance because he's got a bad back. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I think it's really, really lovely. There's an, a, a nice underlying uh, riff that we talked about on the on our Sleeping Earth yeah, uh, examination on the Consequences podcast. Pretty sure that part's played by LOL. Yeah, um, and it's, it's a subtle track and, and very pretty. Mm, but it was, for whatever reason, booted off the album, which, yeah, to its detriment, the, as far as at the very I'm... least, it could have, it could have, maybe tagged onto side one or replaced Flying Junk, maybe uh, at the very least, yeah. But hey, but it should have been on there, no mm. question. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was a B side of Life's a Minestrone. Yeah, yeah. Good news, on the other hand, is unfinished business, isn't it? Surely. Good News is a really interesting track because we've just been listening to it again and we think it's a demo, an unfinished mm. demo, possibly just Kevin Lowell mm. from a recording standpoint. Uh, it's a very interesting track. It sounds unfinished. The second half sounds improvised. It sounds like 
Lol went in and sang All I Need Is Some Good News and Kevin is maybe hearing that back in the phones. And, yeah, he's kind and of improvising a bit, isn't he? He's improvising around what Lol's done. There's a bad note of Kev, which is very <laughs> unusual. We clocked yeah. it at 046. Uh, it's, it's, it's I, I think, immediately followed by a lovely, you know, beautiful note where he regains composure. But uh, it sounds like a scratch vocal. But I don't like an idea that they were very keen on and then kind of just slid away from them. Um, so maybe they just said, okay, we'll, we'll jettison this, well, let's, let's put it on the B side of I'm not in love. Yeah, I mean, the last sort of two thirds of the, of the song and nothing more really than a jam around that, that chord progression, aren't sounds, they? Sounds like it, doesn't it's it? It's nice, it's got, it's got a really a, a nice sounding, almost sambery kind of feel. Yeah. Uh, it could have gone somewhere. But one of the things that I, I find that real potential here, and I, I love the sound anyway, mm. is to my ears they've copied the the wah-wah acoustic piano sound from Don't Go Near the Water from Surf's Up oh, by the yeah. Beach Boys. Right. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Don't go near the water. Don't you think it's Really, really nice, but it's it's underproduced because, like you said, I think it, it's nothing more than a, a, a bit of a dalliance in the studio. Yeah, we were just brainstorming. Could it have been a rejected part of One Night in Paris? Mm. We know it was I don't biggest... see that particularly, but uh, no, Lyrically, it's an interesting not, idea. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Mm. Wouldn't it be lovely one day, Paul, talking of One Night in Paris, to? Uh, Get a sneak peek into the, the vaults at Eric Stewart's house, and I wonder if that full length One Night in Paris is uh, is lurking somewhere, at least on a cassette. Yeah, at least on a, Do they? Do they exist? I mean, they're, they're pretty brutal in, you know, saying, no, if we didn't like something, we erased it. Mm. But you think they would have sneak, snuck home with something uh, as a reference tape or something, but... They'd have surely each had a copy for their cars, wouldn't they, to listen to? Would you have had cassette players in the cars at that time? But they had a few quid by that, that, that stage, didn't they? Well, I mean, I know that as part of the deal with Phonogram, and we should have asked Ken about this, I, I remember reading that they were they got home video recorders, four of the first people in the country mm. to be able to tape whatever, whatever was on. And, of course, Ken was, was massively involved, wasn't he, in, in, in launching home video recording, VH, yeah. VHS and yeah, so on. Yeah, so that kind of, kind of fit, fit with that, but... Um, yeah, so we come to the end of the original soundtrack tracks. Um, Shall we have a, a little talk about the, the cover, the artwork? So another hypnosis design sleeve. Mm. I believe this was a photograph that it is Humphrey Ocean, isn't it? The that's, that's right, the artist. Was then brought in to do a pencil, in a, you know, beautiful pencil drawing so of the photograph. So intricate, isn't it? Yes, the inside sleeve, particularly showing all the 
the, well, showing the, the outside sleeve, showing the paraphernalia of an editing room and all the sort of clutter and, and the, the inside and just little nods to, to 10CC. It's, it's, a, it's a subtle piece of artwork, isn't it? It really is. And it, it really does, the black and white as well, really does mirror what's going on with, with One Night in Paris, I think. Yeah. Uh, and totally mirrors Godling Cream's approach to music and we, we, we really see it writ large don't we on this record they were hinting at it strongly on the previous records but yeah. here you got that opening well it's, an, e- it's an editor isn't it that's a film it is. editor, it's a, it's a film so, editor. So, so it's kind of the clue is there the clue is in this picture yeah editing that's what that's what they're all about isn't it that became their that became their their, their chief creative tool didn't it exactly um, even more so in their in their video period right uh, it's a great album sleeves sheet music was great as well um, I think my favorite sleeve is going to be coming next week I think you're right yeah it was really interesting to hear Ken say on last week's podcast that they were very pleased at phonogram by this album um, they felt that 10cc had really delivered and, and progressed he actually used yeah. the term progression didn't he yeah. and, and yeah, they did progress. They did. Maybe not to our, our complete satisfaction as, you know, from our subjective viewpoint, but they certainly grew up, didn't they, with this album? Yes. Um, in good ways and perhaps not so good ways, but a fine record. And I think anything in comparison with sheet music would be, uh, well, it's a difficult act to follow, isn't it? Along with the original soundtrack, there were some very interesting uh, other recordings that uh, 10CC were involved with, uh, two of which which were pretty big hits. Um, can you uh, tell me, Sean, what is the only hit record to feature a gizmo? <laughs> well, I only found this out about two days ago when you, when you kindly played me that strange little lilting Irish tune by The Scaffold, right? By the scaffold, yeah. But obviously, a follow-on from the McGear album, which had been recorded the previous year, because Mike McGear was one of the three members of Scaffold, and mm. they went back to um, Strawberry to record uh, an entire album, but off that the hit single "Liverpool Lou." Mm. Um, and uh, I only know that myself because Peter Wadsworth, the uh, Strawberry Archivist, told me or asked me that question, what's the only hit record with a gizmo on it? And I think we've had a look at the credits and I don't believe the gizmo featured on any 10cc hits, certainly not strongly, whereas here is Lowell doing a, a gizmo solo. <laughs> Invent gizmo involvement on on the other hits. Right. Yeah, it's underused, arguably, on, on on the hits. The gizmo, yeah. and it's a nice. I really love the tune. <laughs> uh, and this would have been what we're hearing here. I, I guess is the sort of second prototype that that Lol and Kev put together. Is that right? 
before it went out uh, sort of manufactured properly? Uh, I'm not sure whether they had created the the prototype, um, the, the model that was created uh, in um, conjunction with Manchester University. Mm. I don't know whether this version is that version or not. Um, we'll, we'll try and do some more work on the timeline. Mm. But certainly a very high-profile appearance of, of the gizmo. Um, alongside that uh, record in the charts, pretty much at a similar time, was Blue Guitar, which was credited to Justin Hayward and John Lodge. Yeah, Although, rather than Moody Blues. Well, from what I know, and I don't know much about the Moody Blues history, they'd kind of split up around this time. I don't think John Lodge was on this recording. Although by the time they were doing promotional duties, he was back with Justin and they were promoting it as a duo. Mm. But this is essentially a 10cc track mm. uh, with lead vocals and, and lead guitar, I think, uh, or some of the lead guitar from Justin Hayward, but Eric is also on there uh, playing yeah. lead. Uh, it's an interesting track. It's very much in the in the, in the Moody's wheelhouse, isn't yeah. it? A sort of heartfelt ballad, but it's um, it's a nice a nice example of of the of the ten, of ten CC um, being in the charts again. Absolutely. It seems like in 1975, rather than resting on their laurels and and focusing all their energies on ten CC, it looks like they were still uh, an operating. Uh, studio band, much in the same way that they were on the Neil Sedaka albums and so on. Yes, they they never completely left that behind, or, or it's that amount yeah. of work slowed down a great deal. But it, it wasn't just cut off on the day that they decided to become Ten CC, or on the, the day shortly after that that they finished the, the trial. Our days are over. Sure. Um, were they doing these extra tracks at the same time as original soundtrack, or, or were they interwoven? around it or did they focus all their attention on original soundtrack and then do these things before or after, do you know? I think the latter. As far as I know, the original soundtrack was finished early on in 1975, very early on, and most of it was recorded in 1974, not long after sheet music, I yeah. think. Uh, these tracks, I mean, uh, there's no documentation that I can find, but these two singles we're talking about, Liverpool Lou and Blue Guitar, I assume were recorded in 1975 after the completion of the original soundtrack, but I don't know that for sure. Yeah. And the original soundtrack came out in May, is that right? Or was that when the single, uh, was uh, I'm Not In Love released in May? Yeah, well the, 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 the original soundtrack was released on March the 5th in the UK and Life is a Minestrone right around the same time, maybe a couple of weeks later. But the, there was a bit of a, there was a groundswell of um, expectancy coming from I'm Not In Love, and they really, I would say, rush released that. It was only released seven or eight weeks after Life's a Minestrone. That's which a was, very short span so, of time, isn't it? Yeah, even in, even in that time, that, yeah. they, um, there was obviously a, a lot of excitement about that record, and, and, uh, and they, they got it out there quite quickly. Yeah, and, and obviously we, we, we're covering I'm Not In Love in a lot of detail on a separate podcast, so we'll have to keep our powder dry, I think, on that one. Exactly. Yeah. So a busy year. There were some interesting other projects, weren't there, that year? 
Uh, are you talking about the Mandala Band? Yeah, or was, it, was that at a later time? That was a following band. This is slightly confusing, and we really will return to talk about this very interesting album uh, created by David Roll, who was also on the engineering staff at Strawberry. Uh, amongst other things, he was or became a controversial Egyptologist. Mm. In fact, he, he, he packed in music, became... Uh, um, uh, sorry, archaeologist, Egyptologist, I'm not sure that sure the terminology. But before he got to that, he delivered two concept albums. Um, the first one, um, and both these came out under the auspices of the Mandala Band, and um, Mandala apparently means a visual mantra. Uh, I wasn't sure what that name meant. Um, the first album had no 10cc involvement. Uh, it was recorded at Indigo, which was a kind of rival studio in Manchester. All right. um, uh, but it was the second album, The Eye of Wendor, uh, which was Rolls. He, he tried to do a musical version of The Lord of the Rings, I believe, but couldn't get rights. So he repurposed a lot of the material and turned it into his own science fiction, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark type uh, record. Mm. It's actually a really interesting record, particularly interesting from our point of view, because Eric and Graham and Kev all sing lead on tracks. Uh, Kev, in particular, puts in a fantastic vocal performance, doesn't he? Yeah, it's record. We will, we will return to this album in some detail, uh, and it, it sounds very different from a 10cc album. Yeah. You have to your, your ears have to attune to the <laughs> the bigness of the sound, the reverbs, and the fact that it's a bit difficult. It's, it, it, you can't really hear the guys as clearly as you're used to hearing, and right. that in itself is a lesson to be learned about the skill of, of Eric, I suppose, as an engineer. Or, or even Eric's production style, that very much the dry production style, yeah. the, the Steely Dan influence that he was yeah. so mad on at the time. Nevertheless, this is this is a, a really interesting record and we'll, we'll return to it in, in, in some detail sometime soon. It's interesting, just as a, a quick aside, Paul, you said that uh, he couldn't get the rights to Lord of the Rings. I own a record, I don't know why or how I, I own it. It's called Lord of the Rings. The artist won't spring into my head at this point. Right. Released, I think, in the mid-70s, and it's actually called The Lord of the Rings, and it's okay. a, a concept album, a musical interpretation of the, of the, of the books. So I wonder wh why he didn't, why he wasn't able to get the rights. Good question. I don't know. Maybe it was part of a larger package. Maybe he was hoping to do a film or, a, or something else, and maybe yeah. the rights were tied up in that way. Yeah. Um, but some of the songs certainly started out uh, as, as you know for that project and, and were then repurposed for this yeah. uh, science fiction um, uh, type project. Mm. What else were the band up to in, in '75? Uh, didn't they launch a, 
a Euro- their first European tour that year. They did. Uh, well, they had. A, I mean, they had a UK tour r- right around the same time as the original soundtrack came out. Uh, looking at my notes, in fact, it was the same day, March the fifth. Hmm. They started a tour starting at Leeds University, where they were supported by Fancy. Who were Fancy? Do you remember them? I don't know. I was, I was reading about these the other day, and I, I they completely escaped my notice. <laughs> right. Are they? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure who they are. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, they did a UK tour. Then they did a European tour, which was their first European tour, yeah. I think. Uh, and that was... and that's, that surprises me, especially given the band's success in Holland, uh, you know, among other countries. They were, they were very popular there, weren't they? Yeah. Always guaranteed. Uh, to sell loads of albums, and their 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 songs and albums would all, always feature strongly in the in the Netherlands charts. So I wonder why they hadn't gone over there before '75. Yeah, I I, I I don't know. I don't know. Also at this time, Jonathan King, who had lost control of the band, obviously, but retained the rights to the songs from their first two albums, uh, released his Greatest Hits album, 100cc. The dubiously titled Greatest Hits, yeah. Slightly dubious. I mean, it's half right, isn't it? Because the A side is full of uh, hits and the B side is full of B sides. Uh, That, I didn't realise, that got in the top ten. That was a big seller. Yes, um, equaling, let's say, the, the success of, of, of sheet music, at least chart-wise. Definitely, I mean, and he timed it superbly, didn't he? He did. Um, yeah, trailing kisses in the direction of I'm not in love, as Robert <laughs> Chris Gow memorably puts it. He releases this uh, this great greatest hits album using the material he does have control over. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ever the savvy businessman getting getting that out. At the right time. And using his 96% wisely, I should think. <laughs> yeah, right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, rather than the four, the, with all he left uh, Eric yeah, and Lol and Graham and Kevin, yeah. indeed. And uh, by August, they'd started work on How Dare You. Uh, they were pumping out albums. Uh, I didn't, uh, looking at the timeline, they released, it was very symmetrical. They released an album every 10 months. Um, from uh, 1973 through to 1976. That's extraordinary productivity, isn't That's it? That's some work rate uh, when you're doing these other projects and when you're putting as much effort into all aspects of, well, not just the records, but the studios, the live work. Uh, yeah. All those collaborations, the guest work. They were very, very busy chaps. Yes. And when you think that the level of... of textures and ideas that go into a, a you know a single 10 cc album yeah and the writing one yeah. gets the impression that they really were writing new material there wasn't as far as we know there wasn't a large stockpile of mm. songs to call upon yeah they actually went up to strawberry went into those little rooms somewhere and said right let's let's hmm. pair off and write some songs yeah. which... and they more or less they, they pretty much recorded everything they wrote didn't they as far as we know, yeah. yeah. This is like the impression I get from certainly the interviews from reading Eric's and, and, and Kev's books. It seems that they would rush away into that little side room, come up with an idea, and as long as the band were, were reasonably happy mm. with that idea, they'd go in and record it. And the album would be pretty much a reflection of everything they they finished. Exactly. And I'm really looking forward to 
looking at, can the, we say sadly... The uh, final act. The final act of 10CC Mark I. Thank you, folks, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. been listening to the consequences podcast produced by paul mcnulty and sean mccreevy thanks for listening